ASEAN ministerial meetings, scandal in Singapore, and secretaries on electric scooters. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Jafet Kitsan, and today is July 27th, 2023. On today's show... If the United States is doing particularly well with the broader public, but not so well on the elite side, uh, you know, what does that mean for how we shape our engagement with sort of the government of the day versus uh, the broader population and vice versa? And so these, you know, this has implications for how uh, the United States conducts its public diplomacy. That was our very own Andreka Nadalagawa, who chatted with Greg Poling and Alina Noor about the program's upcoming report on U.S. and Chinese influence in the region. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Nikki Arcado in the studio. Nikki is a former intern with our program and currently works at the Department of State's APAC team. Welcome, Nikki. Happy to be here. Are we still on for the potluck tonight? What are you going to make? Yeah, um, I spent yesterday just prepping some side dishes and soup, but I'm not sure what else to make. How about you? I'll probably make adobo sagata, which is an adobo made with coconut milk and lots of spicy chilies. It's super popular in the Philippines' Bicol region. I really can't wait to try it. Clearly, we'll have a lot of culinary grounds to cover, though. And we have a lot of news to cover this morning as well. Our first news story, 2023 ASEAN Chair Indonesia recently hosted a series of ministerial meetings that covered a wide variety of topics. Yes, and for the first time, Timor-Leste's Foreign Minister Bendito dos Santos Frietas joined the Foreign Minister's meeting. The country was granted observer status in the bloc just last year, and its FMM debut demonstrates its improved integration within ASEAN. And greater integration is what the bloc needs right now. The South China Sea was a recurring discussion topic at these meetings. The area never has a dull moment, as longtime listeners might know. That's right. On July 13th, ASEAN and China agreed on a set of guidelines to speed up the code of conduct negotiations. While specific details were not released to the public, both parties welcomed the resumption of negotiations, which stalled during the pandemic. While it's great to see that there were some productive conversations throughout these meetings, this wasn't the case across all of Asia. A day before the meetings, North Korea launched an intercontinental ballistic missile just as the leaders from Japan and South Korea were supposed to meet. ASEAN responded by reiterating its commitment to peace, security, and stability in the region. Wait, isn't North Korea also part of these forums? Precisely. North Korea is a member of the ASEAN Regional Forum, which could give the bloc a constructive role in establishing regional stability. That is, if all actors participate responsibly. Well, I, I mean, I guess that makes sense. That reminds me, though, how was Myanmar handled in the foreign minister's meeting? Right, Myanmar. As you can imagine, the current situation is still a source of contention for ASEAN members. The junta-led government has still refused to implement the five-point peace plan. Meanwhile, ASEAN member states continue to disagree on how to handle the ongoing crisis. So I've heard. Malaysia called for stronger condemnation, while Thailand, which shares a border with Myanmar, had a different approach. Last month, Thai Foreign Minister Don Pramutwinay held meetings with Myanmar military officials, much to the dismay of many other ASEAN members. He also met with Aung San Suu Kyi right before the ministerial meeting, confirming she was in good health and emphasized that she, quote-unquote, encouraged dialogue. It's shocking to know that this was only a sliver of what was covered at the ministerial meetings, and I wish we could cover more, but now we have to move on. Before we do, I do want to quickly plug Jafet's latest publication where he talks about these meetings in depth. So if this interests you, please be sure to check out his analysis on our latest on Southeast Asia blog. Oh, thanks. I appreciate the plug. 
Now let's pivot to Singapore. While it's normally pretty calm there news-wise, there's been quite a flurry of activity lately. In the span of a week, three members of parliament resigned. Two are from the People's Action Party, or PAP, and one from the Opposition Workers' Party. That's pretty significant, especially since there are only 93 elected members of parliament. Right. Speaker of Parliament Tan Chuan Jin and MP Cheng Li Hui, both from the ruling PAP, resigned in light of their, quote, inappropriate relationship, unquote, with each other. Tan noted that he also quit due to his use of, quote, unparliamentary language, end quote. And on the Workers' Party side, MP Leon Pereira and Nicosia, president of the party's youth wing, also resigned after revelations about their extramarital affairs. My goodness. Besides just salacious gossip, why are these recent events important, Jafet? Right. Well, the PAP's brand is clean politics, so it's a big deal when something like this happens. This comes right after the ex-minister of transportation, Subramaniam Iswaran, was charged in a corruption investigation. He was a member of the PAP as well. In the meantime, Prime Minister Li Xianlong said in a statement that he intends to nominate Xia Qianpeng for Speaker of Parliament later in August. We'll have to wait to see if these scandals have any long-term effects on PAP dominance. Moving on to our final story for today, what if I told you that there's a picture of the U.S. Treasury Secretary on an electric scooter floating around the internet? Wait, what? I swear it exists. I mean, yeah, I believe you, but could I get some context? Of course. So, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen recently made a stop in Vietnam as part of her tour around Asia. Oh, yes. While she was there, she met with Prime Minister Fan Min Chin to commemorate 10 years of the U.S.-Vietnam Comprehensive Partnership and to reiterate the importance of Vietnam to the United States Friendshoring Initiative, which aims to deepen integration with a broad set of partners and allies to create diverse, resilient, and sustainable supply chains in key industries. Her visit to Hanoi demonstrates the U.S.'s growing interest in boosting security and economic ties with Vietnam, which is increasingly becoming a powerhouse in manufacturing semiconductors, vehicles, and other products. Which brings us to why she was on the electric scooter. She was visiting Vietnamese electric vehicle startup Selex Motors. Ah, that makes sense now. Yeah, Vietnam's trajectory in these industries has been interesting to follow, and it makes me wonder if we'll see more Vietnamese products or more Vietnamese-made products in stores soon. But honestly, now I just want to see the photo. Can you show it to me? Yeah, sure. Wait, that's amazing. Right? All right, Jafet. I've got to follow her lead and zoom on out of here now. <laughs> Thanks for stopping by, Nikki. And those are the headlines. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Andreka Nadalegawa. Stay tuned. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I am your host, Gregory Poling with CSIS, joined by my inimitable co-host, Alina Noor of the Carnegie Endowment. Hey, Alina. Hey, Greg. And our guest today is some in-house talent, Andreka Nadlagawa, Associate Fellow with the Southeast Asia Program. Thanks for coming on, Andreka. Thanks for having me. So we have Andreka here, not only because he does most of the actual work in the Southeast Asia Program, but because he's my co-author on a forthcoming report. Assessing U.S. and Chinese influence in Southeast Asia that we wanted to, to talk about. Andrika, I said forthcoming. Do we actually know when it's going to be published? Hopefully at some point by the end of this month, July. Okay. So probably shortly after the yeah. podcast comes out. We'll exactly. see. 
Maybe check CSIS and see if you have an early surprise, listeners. I don't know. You just want people to check every single day. Yeah, just hit reload. It helps our metrics versus the other programs here at CSIS. But with that, since I wrote the report, let me turn over the wheel to Alina to actually steer today's show. Yeah, so I read through the draft report. Every word. Every single word. And I'm impressed. Impressed because it was so much data in there that I guess we'll unpack in the next few minutes. But I wanted to really ask you why you did this, because there are a number of other polls, right, about how the region feels about the U.S. and China. And I guess if, not that you need to pitch it, but I guess what's the added value of this report? So let me start with, yeah, what the report is. So this report is a collation, collection of opinion polling country by country across the region. And we're not a polling firm, so we didn't go out and do any of our own polls. Think of this as a, for US politics nerds, a real clear politics tracker or a 538 tracker where we are collecting other data and then we are weighting them according to how large sample sizes are, how rigorous they are, uh, volatility year over year in their samples, et cetera to come up with kind of a, a grading scheme. And we, we keep it pretty simple. So we take the polls that are available, we break them into both public and elite, which means you get 20, basically, samples. You get one for each country for the public, one for each country in South Asia for the elite. And when I say South Asia, I only mean the ASEAN 10. We didn't do Timor yet, maybe next year. And then those findings that we consider particularly rigorous are labeled high confidence. And we just say, here's what the public believes, or here's what the elite believes. Those that we consider medium confidence, we also report. Those that we consider low confidence, we really don't, uh, meaning that you should basically take that as anecdotal evidence, but but those are not particularly rigorous polls. And given, of course, that there's a huge diversity of the way questions are asked across the region, we had to be pretty basic in the question. So we're just looking for three questions from each country. Which great power do you, the public or the elites, have warmer feelings toward, China or U.S.? Two, which of the great powers do you consider the most important strategic power in the region? And three, which is the most important economic power in the region? Um, And I guess to come back around and answer your questions, because nobody's done that. There's plenty of polls out there, but nobody who's kind of pulled it all together in a way that's comparable country by country at the country level. Yeah, and I think I would add on in in viewing this report as sort of an informal meta-analysis, right? We're looking at all these different studies, these different surveys each of which have their relative strengths and their relative drawbacks, right? But if we look at them in concert, you know, we really get to get a a sort of better picture of what the numbers actually mean. And this is where some of the economic indicators that are included in the report really come into play as well, as well as some of the other things that we look at uh, just in terms of broader relations that each country have with uh, the United States and China. They help really contextualize some of the numbers that we see in surveys about opinion toward the great powers. And so, just trying to flesh out uh, what the narratives actually are. Uh, I think that was sort of the intent behind the report. So what are some of the indicators that you touched on? And there was a lot of economic data in there that had to be, I guess, uh, listed. And and you can talk more about that. But for those who have not yet had a chance to read the report, what are some of the indicators? Yeah, on the economic side, uh, you know, the main ones are two-way trade. uh, So both looking at imports and exports from Southeast Asian countries to the United States and China, respectively. Uh, We've also looked at uh, investment figures. We've also looked at aid. So taken in concert, again, trying to get a better picture of what the economic relationship looks like between Southeast Asian countries and the United States and China. 
And again, I think this helps flesh out some of the pers- some of the narratives that we've heard about the region's perspectives toward China's uh, what arguably looks like uh, economic dominance, right? And their sort of outsized role in economic affairs in the region. And some of that certainly is true and plays out uh, when you look at the data. But again, just having it all in one page and sort of one quick resource, I think has been helpful. And we're not telling people anything they don't already know on that part. It's not like there's there's plenty of other folks who have pulled together economic indicators to show that China is the dominant economic power in the region. By most metrics, there are a couple and only a couple of countries in the region where U.S. FDI inflows are still either dominant or competitive. And there's, what, two, I think, maybe Cambodia and and Vietnam, where U.S. trade is trailing but actually competitive. But the overall picture, of course, is that China's China's dominant. What we want to show is how that correlates to perceptions in the region because, you know, government policy is driven, at least in those places where, where the people have a say, or at least where the elites have a say, is driven by elite and public perception of economic influence, not spreadsheets of trade and investment and ODA numbers. And what you find is every public for which we have data says that China's their top economic partner. Every set of elites for which we have data in the region says that China's their top economic partner. So they're accurately reading the room when it comes to the Chinese economy. Interestingly, though, we don't find any clear correlation between that economic influence and the overall question of warmer feelings, one way or another. Whether or not China is your biggest economic partner does not necessarily translate into either good or bad opinions about China overall. Hmm. So what does? I mean, what, what determines this heat or warmth index, according to your findings? If somebody would give us a large grant... To analyze other data, I'd love to tell you, no, look, this is an initial report and we are, we are giving the data, we are not trying to trace causality here. One of the reasons that we put down the econ numbers for each country section is because they are the most readily available kind of robust data set where we could really see if there's an obvious correlation and there isn't. I would like to run these numbers against other data, for instance, You've got a whole bunch of metrics for military power that one could pull out. Um, you've got metrics for diplomatic power. You could pull the metrics from the Lowy um, power index. We had to cut it off somewhere, or I mean, we're already above our preferred word count for our publications department. So at the end of the day, we just hope to build on this. But what I can say is that economics does not equal soft power. That's obvious from the data. So... Judging from all that you've done in terms of like collating the data, looking at different polls and surveys, none of this is static, right? Like, so you can have a, a black swan event or even an anticipated event, and that could change how people in the region, whether public or elite, views the US or China. And of course, like all this can change uh, with elections, which a number of, of countries in the region are scheduled to have, but also the U.S. is scheduled to have its election next year. And so your findings this time around might completely change over the next few months, a year, right? Is this something that you intend to look at every single year? If somebody gives us a bunch of money. I knew no. that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we would like to, to keep this as a living tracker. I'll, I'll turn over to Andreka for some of the mess study, but I'll note that volatility in the data sets is one of the things that we use to determine confidence because on very big questions like this, public opinion does not typically swing wildly. Now, you know, If you look at 
historic Pew or Gallup or go country specific and look at, say, SWS or Pulse in the Philippines, a new election in the U.S. or a new election in the host country might shift specific questions about policy. It might shift your opinion about the leader of that country. It doesn't shift your overall opinion about the United States writ large. It doesn't change overnight the warmth of your feelings toward China writ large. Those things change slowly. And so there are some countries in the data set. Um, Singapore is a good example. Also Malaysia, where you can clearly see kind of a, a trend year over year that's shifting. If we had, and in some cases we did, particularly for elite surveys, if we had data where, you know, 60% of the elite said they liked the U.S. better one year and then 70% said they liked China better the next, that was a reason to be suspicious of the data, not to actually believe that there were, you know, 40-point swings year over year uh, in that country's public or elite. Can you say a little more about what those discrepancies were that made you suspicious of data? This is in reference to Cambodia, right? There was a couple. Cambodia and Laos, I believe, right. had pretty wild swings in elite opinion polling year over year. And Brunei. But And that was – these also all had very variable – very variable. They had highly variable elite opinion poll sizes. So when you go from like 40 Bruneians one year – now it feels like I'm calling out specific polling firms. I apologize, but you know who you are. If you go from 40 Bruneians one year to 110 the next year, you can't really present those findings year over year as somehow comparable. Yeah, so it's ultimately a methodology problem, right? In the sense that you're working with a limited sample size. You're working with a sample size that's fluid. Their, their opinions shift based on key developments, whether it's, uh, you know, visits by senior officials from the United States to these countries, right? These things materially shift uh, perception on a very sort of, uh, you know, on that scale. And so when the polling is reliant on those perspectives, you know, it, it skews it a little bit. But at the same time, I mean, to this question about the volatility of the data, you know, for me and the way that I interpret it, it in some ways it's a call to action, right? In the sense that there are so many windows of opportunity for countries like the United States in terms of shifting the dial uh, in sort of public influence and public perception of Washington and beyond. And so there really aren't that many countries or places in Southeast Asia where, you know, Washington is shut out. Uh, there's still so many ways that Washington can step up and really boost its public diplomacy. Maybe we're burying the lead a little bit here, since presumably this is coming out before the report, so listeners can't actually see the table of, of results in front of them. So why don't I just give the, the top lines? Um, so among public opinion polls that simply ask some analog of who do you prefer, the U.S. or China, the U.S. still comes out ahead in Indonesia, uh, way ahead in the Philippines, way ahead in Vietnam, pretty substantially ahead in Thailand, which I think counters the anecdotes that some people have about both Indonesia and Thailand. China only comes out ahead in Malaysia and Singapore among the public. We simply don't have data. We don't have reliable data for Brunei, Cambodia, Laos, or Myanmar, although you know, anecdotes are what they are. There's plenty of reasons that people, I think, can rightly suspect that in at least Myanmar, probably in Cambodia, the public is broadly pro-American, but we simply don't have data to, to show that. Flip over to the elite opinion polls, U.S. is still ahead in the Philippines. Uh, U.S. is ahead in Singapore, which is one of the few examples where the public and the elite are uh, have different opinions on that broad question. We defined both Brunei and Malaysia as toss-ups, meaning that the answers were within a reasonable margin of error and or were shifting year over year. 
I think that was particularly the case in Malaysia, shifts one year over over the next in elite opinion polling. So if we saw that continue, say, next year and it, it remains consistent, then we could say there's been a clear shift that's ongoing. And all the rest, uh, Cambodia, Indonesia, um, Myanmar, Thailand and Vietnam, we really don't have enough data to say what elites, government business and, and private sector elites think overall. I like that toss-up is now a technical assessment term in your report. We have a very thick methodology section. To I mean, It's essentially that we have data. We have sufficient data to say that the public and or elites are pretty evenly divided. I mean, within the margin of error in the case of public opinion polls, or flipping back and forth year over year in the case of elite opinion polls? I mean, I was only being half facetious. I actually do, do like the term. <laughs> <laughs> but why should this matter? You know, like, and, and I guess, just to play devil's advocate, aren't you missing a whole ton of nuance by just concentrating on the US and China? Like, there's been a lot of criticism about this binary, right? What do you say to that? I think that you're right. We are missing a ton of nuance. But if we want to say things with a degree of certainty and rigor, then you often have to kind of get down to basics. I can't collate particularly sophisticated polling questions about China, the US, Japan, the EU, or India, because there is not enough data asking those questions to do that. So one of the big takeaways here is that Southeast Asia remains a highly under-polled, under-surveyed region. There's no equivalent of like the Chicago Council here doing these very big end surveys of public opinion about foreign policy. With the exception of Malaysia and Singapore, Southeast Asia is generally not included in the Pew Global Attitude Survey that we all rely on so much and that the media likes to report on. So we can say with certainty, some very basic things. And then we can highlight where there's enough uncertainty that we should all be a little more modest in our our conclusions. And I mean, I'll be upfront. One of the narratives that we really do want to tackle with this report is the tendency of folks in the U.S. and elsewhere to go to a single capital in Southeast Asia for a long weekend of meetings, come back and say, here's what Southeast Asia thinks. We say, no, this that's what 20 people that you talked to this weekend think. Southeast Asia is a country of a region of 10 countries and nearly 700 million people, and you didn't survey all of them. So it's meant to be supplementary um, and, and to provide richer contextual information about how the region, parts of the region feel. And I do think it provides some quantitative metrics that are valuable for future research. Do we want to say whether or not China or the U.S. are winning hearts and minds in country X based on some program? Well, why don't we start with the only way to actually know that, which is public opinion surveys of who is preferred, who's a preferred partner. And in that case, I think there's plenty of additional work that can be done on top of this data and that we do hope to do. And if you do that over time, it provides a useful way to gauge whether or not certain policies are actually working. Otherwise, all we're doing is making policy based on anecdote. And I think, you know, one of the things I'd jump in on here is by disaggregating, right, if we're talking about elite opinion and public opinion being separate things, you know, you, you get different sort of policy out of that in the sense that this question of 
if the United States is doing particularly well with the broader public, but not so well on the elite side, uh, you know, what does that mean for how we shape our engagement with sort of the government of the day versus uh, the broader population and vice versa? And so these, you know, this has implications for how the United States conducts its public diplomacy. I mean, you talked about soft power and public diplomacy, right? It's difficult to measure because it's intangible, right? It's, and, and there are different definitions of soft power as well. So how do you connect the dots sort of between the metrics that you've chosen? I understand the, the limitations that you're under with this initial report, but what was your thinking in choosing to connect the dots between like the economic data, kind of the other polling data that's already out there that you've collated, and you know, perceptions of Southeast Asian elites as well as the public towards the US and China? I won't speak for Andreka here because it's not part of the report. So he didn't sign on to, to this necessarily. Um, but if the driving concern for potentially decades to come among at least U.S. policymakers and many like-minded policymakers is a competition over the rules and norms that govern the international system, then that is, at the end of the day, a competition for hearts and minds within the global south or the developing world, pick your term, and Southeast Asia is at the front lines of that competition. Whether you like the U.S., whether you say you like the U.S., or whether you say you like China better, isn't a perfect analog for that, but I struggle to think of a better one, right? At the end of the day, year over year, decade over decade, whose vision of how the world works is more attractive is largely going to be captured by kind of the general question, how do you feel about China? How do you feel about the U.S.? And I, I think that if we don't at least have some basic answer to that, driven by more than vibes from <laughs> our random trips, then we have no way to calibrate policy over the long term. Andreka, did you want to weigh in on this? No, I think that's fair. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you talked about like the, this... Well, you didn't say competing visions, but there's a, a vision that's presented by China. There's a vision that's presented by the U.S. is kind of the vibe I'm getting from what you just said, Greg. Where does the agency of Southeast Asia and how it feels about its own vision of the future, underpinned by laws, rules, etc., where does that feature in this? In this report, it's in the background. Okay. I mean, again, I, for the same reasons that we didn't include other third parties here, Vietnam, Australia, or Japan, Australia, the EU, for the same reason that we asked, that we limited ourselves to three very simple questions. It's because we just don't have the data. I mean, the number of polls and polling firms in the region who ask detailed questions of the public in these countries, what is your policy preference on X? We're talking the Lowy Institute in Indonesia once every decade, Sometimes social weather stations in the Philippines, very rarely Merdeka Institute in Malaysia asking that kind of policy. And that's it. And then, and then we run out of things to say. So I don't want to suggest that there is a strict binary choice before South Station states. There's not. But there is clearly a pretty substantial difference and a competition for influence between China and the U.S., and we do have just enough opinion polling to give us a sense of which of those visions is more attractive to most of the people of Southeast Asia. Yeah, I mean, I would say 
with regards to this question of agency, right? To me, reading through the report, it, the agency of Southeast Asian countries is somewhat self-evident in the sense that these numbers matter. It's a material difference uh, in terms of how these countries perceive the United States and China, what implications that has for how these countries approach foreign policy and their relations. Uh, you know, that wouldn't matter if these countries didn't have agency, right? But it does. And so I think insofar as, you know, us sitting here in Washington or folks in Beijing, you know, need to pay attention to that. They need to be more attuned to what people on the ground are thinking and shape policy instruments accordingly. That's a better answer. I want his answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll just ignore your answer there. Thank you. No, no. But but I think uh, both of what you said is is really important as well. It's it's funny because in Southeast Asia, you know, when I was working there on a more regular basis, nobody ever referred to polls or surveys, right? And it seemed like almost an American obsession to go by polls and surveys. And I don't know if with this proliferation or you know, what might be seeds of a proliferation of poll, polling and survey, that maybe policymaking will also be hinged on some of these numbers in Southeast Asia itself. So it'll be interesting to see what your work and some of the other polls that have come out, how that plays into what eventually comes out in terms of evidence-based policymaking in the region. But looking on, I mean, you're just releasing this, what do you hope to include in the next iteration of this report? Assuming you get more funding. Pockets is, of cash. Yeah. Um, so uh, please uh, like and subscribe to the podcast and mail <laughs> envelopes full of cash to CSIS, courtesy of Southeast Asia Program. So my wish list would be first to include more uh, historic time series data on some of these countries. We only went back in most cases... 2020, I think, and on the hard data. And, and part of this is also the, the data problem. Um, polling is becoming more frequent in the region, although still not as frequent as we might like. So the farther you go back, the more gaps you get. And there's just not a lot of places other than maybe Singapore, Malaysia, and the Philippines where you have a good data set. But And this will also kind of naturally build out, hopefully, um, so that you can really see whether or not these snapshots in time build up to a trend. Country X is trending toward a preference for China or country Y is trending toward viewing um, the U.S. as a less and less important economic player. Uh, second, I would like to expand the geographic scope beyond Southeast Asia. Um, Sub-Saharan Africa would be at the top of my list, and then maybe Latin America and, and the Middle East. Third would be adding more questions, and that's because adding more questions, of course, exponentially, you have to take all that other stuff you said and add a whole new category for each and every one. And, you know, the number of polls that ask about Australia are pretty small. The number of ones that ask about the U.S. and China are already small. Now we get even smaller. The gaps in the data will get bigger as we add more questions. Yeah, I think adding on to that, for me, you know, the hope is to be able to update this, right? This is a very particular, like, it's it's a snapshot of a very particular moment in time. Um, when we're talking about in the U.S. context, this is sort of a report card, right, for about a year and a half, year or two years of the Biden administration and its efforts. And so uh, what this would look like a year from now, two years from now, sort of if we were to head into sort of a different administration post-2024, that's all really interesting. And so hopefully this becomes sort of a living product that we can update continually. If only generative AI could go back in time and pull out all that data that you need, right? I mean, generative AI could certainly create the data we need if it doesn't exist. It's gotten, right. Yes, it's gotten very <laughs> good at giving users the answers that we're looking for. That's a whole different problem. Maybe a whole <laughs> other report to write. 
But look, I think it's something, uh, it's an added resource for the region as well as for policymakers in Washington. And I'm sure that you'll get heavy traction on your report once it comes out. Thank you for having me look at it and for asking you all these tough questions about it. Thanks so much, Alina. Uh, and Andreka, thank you for doing all the work of pulling the econ data while I played with polling. Thanks. <laughs> all right. Uh, that's it for us this week. Uh, we will speak to you all again in two weeks on the next Southeast Asia Radio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify, or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us as well. Marla Hiller is our producer, and our interns are Yume Lin and Ramil Mercado. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Jaffet Kitson. And I'm Nikki Arcardo. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.